This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you, and welcome to the show. Now, we begin tonight with Orson Welles, starring in The Lives of Harry Lyme. It's an old-time radio program produced in the United Kingdom during the 1951-52 season. Orson Welles reprises his role of Harry Lyme from the celebrated 1949 film The Third Man. It is one of the most successful series created by prolific British radio producer Harry Allen Towers and his company Towers of London. Now, Towers and Graham Greene author of The Third Man, had the same literary agent, and Towers learned that Green had not sold the rights to the character of Harry Lyme to Alexander Corda when he sold Corda The Third Man. So, Towers quickly bought the rights to the character, and in 1951, he put a syndicated radio series into production. Orson Welles reprised the role of Harry Lyme in that series that preceded the story told in The Third Man. Now, although often cited as a BBC production, the series was one of a number produced and distributed independently by Towers of London and syndicated nationally and internationally. And what about the zither music that plays throughout the show? Well, that was provided by Anton Karras, who was a mere entertainer in a Vietnamese wine bar, but the director of The Third Man, Carol Reed, heard him playing and knew immediately that this man would provide the theme for the movie. So he was invited to London and lived with Reed. Reed treated him very well, but Karras was in a slump. And then suddenly Reed rushed into Karras's room, lay at full length on the floor and said, Now I'm dead. Only your zither can bring me back to life. Karras played such a song uh, and to raise me from the dead, he said. Instantly, Karras realized his intention and tried to play a song that would satisfy him, but Reed wasn't easily satisfied. Karras exerted himself for hours, and the moment he almost gave up, he played that familiar melody. The success of The Third Man changed Karras's life totally. He played all over the world and won applause from the British royal family and the Pope, and he earned a lot of money. So now to the episode entitled Blackmail is a Nasty Word. Presenting Orson Welles as the third man. The Lives of Harry Lyme. The fabulous stories of the immortal character, originally created in the story The Third Man, with zither music by Anton Karras. Well, 
I've messed around in a lot of messy things. You know me, I'm certainly no angel. But I never had anything to do with murder, or dope, or blackmail. Except just once. With blackmail, that is. Not my fault, either, as I think you'll agree. But all the same, I'm sorry to have ever come within breathing distance of that caper, because as several people during the course of this little story had occasion to point out, blackmail is a nasty word. That's the title of the tale. Stick around and see if you don't agree. back in 47. I was running cigarettes into France in those days, cigarettes and a few other commodities, as I think I've told you before. And I had a nice little sailing boat with an auxiliary, typical pleasure craft of those waters, to use as a cover. This was in September, and I'd just come into port that afternoon. A few of us had been having dinner in the town. I was on my way back to the boat alone. It was late, about four in the morning, cold, rather foggy. Suddenly, looming ahead of me in the mist... And lurching drunkenly, I saw the figure of a man. Big fellow he was. I thought I'd stay out of his way. Marseille's a tough town, one of the toughest in the world. It's a good place not to have any trouble in, so that's why I tried to keep clear of the drunk. But before I could get out of the way, he caught sight of me, uttered a strange, muffled sort of cry, and suddenly threw himself forward. I braced myself for a fight, but before I knew it, he was down on his knees in front of me, groaning. Then all at once I realized he wasn't drunk at all. That all that wet on his chest was blood. I never found out who did it. Even after I took him onto my yacht. Tried to do what I could for him. Never told me who it was that had stabbed him. The knife had gone in just over his heart. And by dawn it was pretty clear that he wasn't going to live through the day. He seemed to realize it too. They got me. And it doesn't matter why me. Maybe they were right. They got me, and now very soon I'm going to die. What is your name? Lime, Harry Lime. I've heard of you. You've quite a reputation, Monsieur Lime. I I call you Harry. Okay. I am Draco. Yes, I see from your face that you have heard of me too. You you call me Marcel. Okay, Marcel. That way I spend my last hour, so among friends. Marcel Bracco. A real Marseillaise. Born quite a while ago anyway. Died September 12, 1947. Profession, crook. All kinds of crook. Some of the dirtiest kinds I knew there. Among other things, I'd heard that Bracco was the chief of the Amazons. It was a gang of girls. Crooks, all of them. They used to 
No, the big ugly man in my berth wasn't one of the nice people. And you mustn't think because I'm telling you this story that I have anything to say in his favor. But he was a guy. See what I mean? He was somebody. And he was dying. Steady, old man. Easy does it. I'm with you. I haven't got time to make a wheel. I, I know that sounds like a joke, but I'm certainly sorry. I'd like to leave you something to show my gratitude, something to remember me by. That's okay, old man. No. All I can give you is this. And it's worth something, Harry. It's worth quite a lot. I give you a name. A name, Harry. Do not think I am joking. This this name is just as good as money or jewels. Remember it. The name it is Maurice Chivolet. Did you hear that, Harry? Chivolet. Maurice Chivolet. Well, who is he? Oh, he's many things, Harry. He's a very many different sorts of men. You must remind him of this. It will be like money to you. Where do I find him? In the Chamber of Deputies of the National Assembly of France. What do I say to him? Say, I'm dying, Harry. Hold my hand. I am, old man. I'm holding you. I haven't time to tell you. You must ask Julien. Julien? Yes, Julien Moreau. Moreau? Moreau. But he was dead. I pulled the sheet up over his big, ugly face and went out of the cabin and locked the door. Three months later in Paris, in a little nightclub in Montparnasse, I ran into Julian Moreau. Julian was a newspaper man, and in his way, Julian was quite a guy, too. Not a crook, just a newspaper man and a good one. I'd struck up an acquaintance with him, and after a couple of weeks, it had brightened into something resembling friendship. So tonight, I thought the time had come when I could afford to approach him on the subject of my legacy. A precious name. Julian. Yes, Harry? I want to ask you a question. Go ahead. I'm going to mention a name. Well? If it means anything, do you let me know? <laughs> Don't be so mysterious, Harry. What's the name? Givolet. Maurice Givolet. Why do you ask? Why don't you answer? Excuse me, Harry. I want you to tell me why you mentioned that name. You won't tell me anything about him unless I do? I'm afraid not. There was a guy down in Marseille told me that name. Said it was worth money. Worth money? Yes. That's what he told me. He was dying at the time. That man in Marseille, he must have been a criminal. Well, don't go all prim and moral on me, Julian. Yes, as a matter of fact, he was something along those lines. What of it? I'm not going moral on you, Eric. I'm nothing very special myself. But when you say to me that the name Maurice Givlet is worth money, <laughs> well... Well, what? There's a nasty world for that, Harry. A nasty world for that kind of money. What do you mean? Chantage. I don't get that. That's French, Harry. French for blackmail. A little later, though, Julian loosened up a little. After a few more drinks. Harry? Yes? That criminal in Marseille you were talking about. Well, you brought him up, Julian. I was asking about a certain Monsieur Givolet. I know. Harry, 
Was the criminal's name Bracco, Marcel Bracco? Yeah, but how do you happen to know him? You're not in the rackets, you're a newspaper man. Marcel was with us for a while in the resistance. He was a brave man, and we got to be friends. Then later, we quarreled. That was after the war. He came to me here in Paris, wanted information about this Givlet. I gave it to him. Givlet is an important man in the government. And through the paper, I arranged an interview between him and Marcel. But I told you, Harry, blackmail something I can't forgive. And Marcel was blackmailing this Givlet? Yes. Not for money, but for protection. Police protection. Marcel, as you probably know, had that gang they call the Amazons. But uh, what was he blackmailing Givlet about? What, what did he have on him? Plenty. And you know what it was? Certainly. Marcel told me. Exactly what was Givlet's past? Ah, uh, Harry. That's Mr. Givlet's secret. <laughs> and yours, old man. It's yours, too. Hmm? Yes, Harry, as you say. It's mine, too. Mm. Must be something pretty bad. Bad enough for a man who's trying to make something decent of himself. Or don't think I like Mr. Givlet. I hate him. But as long as he behaves himself, I won't denounce him. As long as he behaves himself. So that's your price, is it? <laughs> don't you see, old man? In a way... You're a blackmailer yourself. Then, some months later, in the lobby of the Georges Sank in Paris. Calling Mr. Lyme, Monsieur Harry Lyme, yes. Mr. Lyme? Yes, boy. Monsieur Lyme? Yes, what is it, a phone call? There is a lady to see you, Monsieur Lyme. She's waiting in the lobby. A lady, young or old? Young, Monsieur Lyme, and very pretty. Well, either way, old man. What are we waiting for? Hello. You are Harry Lyme? Insist on the original, honey. Accept no substitutes. This is it. I don't understand. I'm Harry Lyme. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Who are you? We haven't got around to that yet. You have not given me a chance to tell you. True enough. My name is Muller. Heidi Muller. Glad to know you, Heidi. Shall we go into the bar and have a drink? It's a little early for dinner, but... This is serious, Mr. Lyme. I've come to see you on business. I was afraid of that. Well, go ahead. I've been told about you, Mr. Lyme. Well, idle gossip, honey. You know how people talk. I'm a straight, upright, clean-living, law-abiding citizen. Uh, what is it you had in mind? Well, I, I... Which particular law did you want me to break for you? I want a passport. Passport? Oh, that's easy. We can arrange that for you in a couple of days. This man here in Paris does very good work with the best... Phony passports come from Amsterdam, if you're willing to wait. It is not as simple as that. Oh? I want a passport for my father. Well, just give me his name, the other particulars, and a photograph. By the way, what kind of passport do you want? American, British, Panamanian? Lad, my father is not here. He's in Romania. Romania? Yes. On the other side of the Iron Curtain. And you want me to get a passport to him in Romania? That's right. That's practically impossible. Uh, Mr. Well, now, now, mind you, when I say practically, uh, that's what I mean. It's practically. For Harry Lyme, nothing is strictly impossible, just expensive, uh, if you get what I mean. Mm, no, I did not. Well, how much dough can you spend? Money? Yes, money. If you want to get a passport to your father in Romania... I'm not going to pay anything, Mr. Lyme. What? You're going to do this for me as a gift. You've come to the wrong man, Heidi. I, I'm sorry, I'd like to help, but I never break the law except on a strictly commercial basis. Besides, an operation Mr. like this... Mr. Lyme, is... this is very embarrassing. It certainly is, dear. But I, 
I told you, you were going to do this for me without charging me money. And you are, Mr. Lamb. Shall I tell you why? Yes, it'd be very interesting to hear. I believe you are in trouble now with the French police, Mr. Lamb. I'm always in trouble with the French police. Why? Yesterday, they sent for me and asked me to identify you. Asked you to identify me? Why? What's the caper? I do not know. It is something to do with counterfeit money. Oh, yes, that casino business. That happened in August in Cannes. They never got me on it. The money was passed, all right. They know that, but they can't pin it on me. I was there on the casino, Mr. Lamb. The police discovered that I was next in line at the cashiers. When they found that out, they came to me. They want me to be a witness against you. They want me to swear that I saw you passing that counterfeit money. I see. And uh, what did you tell them? First, I asked them questions about you. Hmm. That's how I found out that you are, well, who you are. I see. Mukaidi, tell me the truth. Did you really see me pass that money? No. As a matter of fact, I didn't, but unless you helped me with my father, Mr. Lamb, I'll say that I did. And then, of course, you'd go to jail. Hmm. Well? Well, that reminds me of something a friend of mine was saying last night. The French have a nasty word for what you're up to, young lady. I can't remember what it is now. Blackmail's a bad word in any language. In a moment, Orson Welles returns as Harry Lyme, the third man. is quite a character and a great authority on passports, frontiers, international laws in general, and how to break them in particular. Hello? This is Harry Lyme speaking. Harry Lyme, I want to speak to Mama. Trouble. I need help. Bad trouble? Sort of. Come up. I see you right away. An hour later, I'd filled Mama in on the whole story and was waiting for advice. Well, Ari, it's a tricky business. I don't need to tell you. The phony passport's easy. But uh, finding this man Muller in Romania and... uh, Then getting him back through the Iron Curtain, it's no joke. Look, Mom, I didn't come here to listen to how difficult it is. I want some help. Well, 
There are two ways. Yeah? The first way you go to remain yourself. That's the way I don't like. I don't blame you. A man can get killed around there. The other way is uh, through diplomatic channels. The way you say it, it sounds easy, Mama, but you know any ambassadors? No. I don't know any ambassadors, neither do you. All you need is somebody high up in the government here in France. If you could just find a weak place somewhere, a weak place where you could uh, put some pressure. You mean blackmail? I don't like the word, Harry. No. I mean pressure. Just find the soft place where you can push. Hmm? Hey, where are you going? Sit down, I'm making a nice glass of tea. Thanks, Mama, but I haven't got time. I've got to find myself one of those soft places. And then, Mama, I've got to start pushing. Pushing quick or else. Or else? It's that same old word, Mama. I don't like it any more than you do. Blackmail? Pressure, Mama, pressure. So long. <laughs> Monsieur Lyme? Yes? Monsieur Givelet will see you now. Come this way, please. Thank you. Monsieur Lyme? Oh, yes. Come in, please. What can I do for you? Well, I'll get right down to the point, Givelet. I know you're a busy man as well as an important one. Well? I have a favor to ask. Huh? There's a man in Romania. He's stateless. Nansen passport before the war. His daughter's here in France. She wants to get him out. Are you serious, Monsieur? Uh, Lyme. Such a thing as you are asking. Why, it's practically impossible. And I will be frank with you. I don't even know who you are. Lime, Harry Lime. I told you that, old man. Well, you see, even on the highest ministerial level... It would be, as you say, practically impossible. I like that word, practically, Mr. Givalet. It gives me a little hope. Yes, but... I know. Don't bother to say it again. You don't know me from Adam, Monsieur Givalet, but there, you see, I have the advantage. I know you from Adam, Monsieur Givalet. I even know you from Monsieur Givalet. I... I don't understand. I've been in touch with a friend of yours. What friend of mine? A man called Brocco. What? Marcel Brocco. The name seems to mean a good deal to you. He said it would. Brocco is dead. But not Brocco's secret, not your secret, old man. He gave it to me before he died. Now then, when can I expect some action on my client, Miller? Your client? The man who needs a passport. Remember, the case you said was practically impossible. Leave the particulars with my secretary. You will hear from me before the end of the week. Thanks, old man. I appreciate this. I really do. And when do I hear from you? Again, I mean, uh, blackmailers always come back. That's a nasty word, old man. Don't use it again. and You won't see me. Well, it worked. Whatever it was, it worked. I was holding a secret over a man's head, and I didn't even know the secret. Yes, whatever I was threatening the politician Givalet with seemed to be a threat strong enough, because by the end of next week, Heidi's father was on his way through the Iron Curtain. She said I was wonderful, Heidi did. Asked how she could ever thank me. I told her that thanks didn't come into it. I'm not your benefactor, honey, remember? I told her... I'm your victim. About four months later, Julian wrote me from New York. This is Julian Moreau, my newspaper man. Dear Harry, he wrote, now that it's all over, I think you have a right to know the truth. The truth about Givalet, I mean. I'm reading to you now from 
Julien's letter. Givray was born in a suburb of Paris. His political life began when he joined a group wearing black boots and brown shirts of a violently anti-democratic character. This was all during the 30s. Then, during World War II, came his big chance. You will see that this Givre, while essentially a little man, is clever. He secures for himself very early in the German occupation a false identity card, and it is under the false name of Givre that he is a collaborationist, a Nazi stooge, and a black marketeer. His real name is therefore a good name. It is the false one which is bad. Now it's the beginning of 44. Convinced that the Nazis are near the end, he rushes forward to the fighting French and under his real name joins their invasion corps. Under his true identity, he gives them some assistance. And at the end of the war, the power of the resistance becomes overwhelming and their investigations far-reaching. So Givalet drops the false identity of Givray forever. Now notice, please, that his original name is above reproach since it was under the false one that he acted for the Nazis. Now, there's need for men like himself, modest, self-effacing, industrious. And so it comes to pass that the little fascist street fighter, the black marketeer, the collaborationist who betrayed scores of his countrymen to the Germans is triumphantly elected to the parliament as representative of one of the great historical parties of France. Well, now, my friend, we come to the Amazons. I gave them this title in the newspapers myself just before the war. Theoretically, the racket was broken up, but in fact, it was still flourishing in Paris until the very recent death of a certain Marcel Bracco. This gang worked in pairs late at night. Gangs of girls, striking up casual acquaintances with visiting provincial gentlemen of a certain age and steering them to various nightclubs, finally to a cheap bar where the respectable old gentleman was invariably rolled, as you say in America. In other words, everything was taken from him, and if possible, afterwards, he was blackmailed. Now, some such poor old fellow was being beaten up in a bar by Bracco and the others who worked in his gang when Givalet, driving home from an all-night session at the National Assembly, heard the noise. He was waiting for a traffic light to change, and seeing no police on the street, he went into the little bar to investigate. Now, Mark, this was a genuinely kindly act the act of a self-respecting French citizen. And you see what it got him. Of course, the gangsters turned on him and beat him senseless. Going through his wallet, they came on his old identity card, which he'd kept for some reason or another, concealed behind a photograph of his mother. It was the card of Givray, the Nazi stooge. Thus, his secret fell into the hands of Bracco, who used it not to extort money, but for police protection for his gang. Very recently, as you may have read in my column, Monsieur Givalet was being considered for an important new post in the ministry. And then you, my dear Harry, came to him with your threats. Threats of exposing something the very nature of which, as it happened, you didn't even understand. Now, Givalet had begun to breathe again, you see, and to hope after Bracco had died. But your visit was too much for him. The French government had put a price on the head of Givray, the Nazi stooge. Givalet, the politician, didn't realize that his secret was safe. Perhaps he was right. A secret like that is never safe. And so it was that after some weeks of waiting for you to return, and of course you never did, his nerve finally cracked. And the very day on which he was to be confirmed in his new post, his housekeeper coming in with a morning coffee found him dead. He was seated before his desk where he had shot himself, seated before a blank piece of paper. He had not even written a note of farewell. I suppose at the end he found it difficult to decide who he could write to, what he would say, and above all, what name he would sign.
returns in just a moment. ago I was in Paris. I went into a little place I know near the markets where they make a wonderful fish soup and who should I see having lunch there but Heidi. Heidi and an old gentleman I was sure must be her father. It was. She introduced him and I sat down with him for a drink. So finally I get to meet the wonderful Harry Lime. <laughs> this is really a pleasure. Well I'm glad you're with us here Miller on the sunny side of that iron curtain. Thanks to you Mr. Lime. Oh no really. But yes. <laughs> my daughter has told me everything. Everything Heidi? Did you tell your father everything? Well, Mr. Lyme, I told him all the wonderful help... But did you tell him how you managed to persuade me to do it? Not exactly, I... Uh, I... Not exactly. What's this? Secrets? Why, Heidi, you're blushing. Heidi, I'll make a deal with you. A deal? I won't tell your father what you did... if you let me take you both to lunch. (laughs) But that's blackmail. It's a nasty word, Mr. Miller. Let's not use it again. It'll spoil our soup. Tune for Duffy's Tavern next on Theater of the Mind. Time now for Duffy's Tavern. Truche, the hand lotion with the beforehand extra, and Vitalis for well-groomed hair, bring you Duffy's Tavern, starring Archie himself, Ed Gardner. the proven way to keep your hair well-groomed. The way successful men in both sports and business keep their hair looking its very best. It's Vitalis and the 60-second workout. See how the Vitalis workout helps your hair, stimulates your scalp. See how it prevents dryness, routes loose dandruff, and helps check excessive falling hair. And see how Vitalis keeps your hair handsome and healthy looking with never a trace of a greasy patent leather shine. For there's not a single drop of mineral oil in Vitalis. So try Vitalis and the 60-second workout. You'll like it. And you'll like what it does for the looks of your hair. Hello, Duffy's Tavern. Where do you leave me to eat? Archie, the man you're speaking. Duffy ain't here. Hello, Duffy. Oh, nothing new. The letter carrier was just in. Delivered a stack of poison pen letters. Yeah, bills. <laughs> Well, so much for the bulk of the mail. Uh, now for the complaints. Uh, there's a letter here from the Department of Sanitation. 
Yeah, they say we'll have to do something about the garbage, Duffy. Yeah, they claim it ate a hole through the bottom of their truck. <laughs> well, look, I'll call you back. Uh, <clears throat> what else have we got, Eddie? Uh, well, get a personal letter to you from the finance company. Oh, yeah? Yeah, they say if you don't settle up right away, they're going to throw you in jail. Oh, yeah? What else do they say? I don't know. I ain't opened it yet. <laughs> finance companies. When you first go to them, they're as sweet as pie. Yeah. Just overlook a couple of years' payments and you find out they're real character. <laughs> hey, wait a minute. Look at here. A letter from the Ritz-Carlton. Hey, who do I know lives at the Ritz-Carlton? Let's see. Yeah, dear Archie, haven't seen you since our old days at PS4, but have often thought about you. Many's the time I think about our old class motto, sick in hock transit hospice. What does that mean? Nothing, it's Latin. <laughs> Who's our class code? Uh, we'll be down to see you at the tavern tonight. Signed, your old classmate, Willie Gundig. Willie Gundig, I wonder if I'll recognize him. It's been such a long time since I was in school. Yeah. And you was there such a short time. <laughs> Willie Gundig, hmm. Living at the Ritz-Carlton. Good friend of yours? Well, no. Uh, him and me never hit it off too good, Eddie. He was always rubbing it in because he got better marks than me. I happened to know it was because he cheated. Cheated? Yeah, he studied. <laughs> Living at the Ritz-Carlton. I never could stand that guy. I always thought he was such a big shot just because his old man owned his own push cart. <laughs> always walking around with his nose in the air like he was smelling something bad. Uh, oh, <laughs> Hello, Finnegan. Uh, uh, Finnegan, guess who I just got a letter from? Uh, General Smuts? No. Well, then I give up. Uh, look, I, can you give me a clue? Well, okay, he was in PS4 with us, and his initials is W.G. Uh, George Washington? Wrong again, Finnegan, it's Willie Gundig. Willie Gundig. You remember him. Remember the guy was always being punished for putting the girl's hair in the inkwells, uh, tying the cans on dogs' tails, uh, uh, putting tacks on the teacher's chair? Yeah. Well, uh, Willie Gundig was the guy that always squealed on me. <laughs> oh, 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 that Willie Gundig. Yeah, yeah. Oh. <laughs> the guy the yearbook said was the most likely to succeed. Hey, wait a minute. I wonder if I still got that yearbook here in the safe. Uh, good old P.S. P.S. Four. Yeah, yeah, four. Uh, wonderful school, Eddie. What memories it brings back? That was a good old day, huh? Yeah, they, they don't make days like that no more. Well, here we are, Finnegan, our old yearbook. Hey, look at this picture here. Remember these guys? No. You don't? No, that was the graduating class. 
Yeah, but look at them now, huh? <clears throat> what a tough bunch of kids that was. Really tough, huh? Eddie, we used to eat the apples and bring the teacher to worms. <laughs> yes, sir, any kid that was in PS4 didn't have a broken nose was either the principal or a new pupil. <laughs> That's it. Uh, how come the kids are staying around in the shirt sleeves with all that snow on the ground? Eddie, that ain't snow. That's teeth. <laughs> well, tell me something. Who, who's the girl on the end with the black eye? The teacher. <laughs> hey, wait a minute. There he is. Who? That jerk, that Willie Gundy. I see. Well, it says, yeah, he was voted the student most likely to succeed. Yeah. Well, uh, where's your picture, Miss Archer? Uh, somewhere there. It's hardly worth looking for, though. It's a very bad picture. Hey, wait a minute, Arch. Here it is on the next page. Uh, anybody want to see pictures of the girls' volleyball team? <laughs> no. We want to see your picture. Oh, well, uh... <clears throat> Here it is. Uh, Miss Archer, your thumb. What about it? It's covering what you was most likely to. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Sorry. Uh... What does it say, Eddie? Archie, the man most likely to be a failure. <laughs> <laughs> Must have been a misprint. <laughs> I don't know. Willie Gundig's living at the Ritz-Carlton. Yeah, you know, I'm just thinking, I... I bet you that Willie Gundig himself broke them most likely twos there. He's always jealous of me, you know, because of uh, me and uh, Alice Vanderwater. Alice Vanderwater? Yeah, the prettiest girl in the school. Oh, yeah, I remember her, Arch. The tall, skinny, bow-legged dame with the buck teeth. <laughs> okay, so she was the second prettiest girl in the school. Yeah. Oh, funny thing. I just ran into Alice Vanderwater the other day over on Avenue A. Oh, really, Miss Duffy? Yeah. Uh, is she married? Yeah. She married Elma Zinser. Elma Zinser? Huh? Yeah. And guess what? They got 15 kids. 15 kids? Yeah. But I don't think she's very happy. <laughs> uh, tell me, uh, why? She says she can't stand Elmer. <laughs> Hey, wait a minute, Arch. Uh, ain't this my picture? Where? Oh, yeah, yeah. Finnegan, what was you doing with the debating team? Arch, what do you think they was debating about? <laughs> hey, wait a minute. Here's one that brings back old memories, though. The old baseball team. We sure had a great ball team that year, didn't we, Finnegan? Oh, boy, I'll say. Look. There's Lefty Schultz, a first baseman. Yeah, and Lefty Ryan, a shortstop. Yeah, Lefty McManus, the catcher. <laughs> Lefty Shapiro, the center fielder. Yeah. Georgie Baker, the third baseman. Georgie Baker? How come he wasn't left-handed? <laughs> he was. We just ran out of nicknames. <laughs> uh... <laughs> By the way, Finnegan, uh... Tell Eddie who was the star of that team. Oh, you tell him, boy. Well, I don't like to brag. Um... Oh, come on, Lefty, tell me. <laughs> well, Eddie, 
I'll never forget the day we played PS6 for the Division C Championship. <laughs> get this, Eddie. Get the drama. I'm pitching for PS4, see? It's the ninth inning. There's two out, and the bags is loaded, see? Up to the plate comes home run Feigenbaum. <laughs> the heaviest hitter on PS6. So I give him a cool look in the eye for a couple of minutes, and I start me wind-up, see? Eddie... I threw three straight strikes at him. The guy never got his bat off his shoulder. I'm telling you, the crowd went nuts. That strikeout won the game for PS4, huh? Uh, not exactly. They, uh, they nosed us out 43 to nothing. <laughs> All on account of that Willie Gundig dropping that high fly in the second inning. <laughs> the guy most likely to succeed. Happens a lot of other PS4 guys succeeded, too. Oh, Archie, stop bragging. You know that PS4 turned out nothing but bums. Oh, yeah? What about Al Peters, for instance? Who's he? Only the chief herring salter at the Fulton Fish Market. <laughs> And what about Henry Shaw? Another success? Merely the head of the Will Call Department of Feinberg's Tiny Tots Toggery Shop. <laughs> and what about Gus Christophilus, the famous television actor? A famous television actor? Ain't lost a fall in 15 straight bouts. <laughs> and they pick Willie Gundig as the most likely to succeed. Hmm. <laughs> Hey, Miss Archie, here comes Joe Moran, the radio announcer. Hey, well, wasn't he one of your pals at PS4? Oh, sure. Hiya, Joe. Hiya, Lefty. <laughs> uh, hey, Joe, we were just going over the old yearbook here. Uh, uh, you remember Willie Gundig. Uh... Willie Gundig? Yeah. Whatever happened to him? He's uh, living at the Ritz-Carlton. Say, that's swell. I'm always glad to hear that one of the old gang made good. Yeah, me too. Say, I wonder if Willie knows that I am now a radio announcer. Well, if he don't, I'll break it to him gentle. I'll tell him first that you're dead. <laughs> hey, Lars, is, is Joe's picture here in the yearbook? Yeah, let's see. Oh, yeah, here you are, Joe. <laughs> what a silly picture. Look at me with my mouth wide open. Yeah, even them days you look like a radio announcer. <laughs> Look, what do you guys have to open your mouths anyhow, Joe? What do you mean? Well, people never listen to them commercials. Why don't you just save your breath and read them silent for yourself? But, Arch, if people listening heard nothing but silence, what would they think? That radio had at last been perfected. <laughs> oh, look, Arch, that's silly. You mean I should just stand there and move my lips? Why not? Go ahead, just move your lips and see if I can tell what you're saying. Well, okay. Uh, Touche is the different hand lotion. Right. <laughs> it not only keeps hands feeling smoother, looking lovelier all the time. Absolutely right. Wait a minute, you studied a bit. Uh, studied a bit? Oh! A bit. Okay, we both stuttered a bit. Okay, well, what was it just said? 
We gotta get this thing in here. Oh, you wanna know what I said? What did you say? All right. Truchet also has a unique beforehand extra that protects hands from chapping. Okay, try another one. Right. <laughs> as long as Truchet is on your hands, they're guarded against painful chapping. That's right. Water chapping as well as weather chapping. Arch, I didn't say that. Well, I didn't want to make you seem like a blabbermouth. <laughs> but that's all aside to the point, Joe. Tell me something. Look, when Willie Gundy gets here, what can I do to impress him that I am also a big success? You could hide. <laughs> You know, Arch, you sound like you're sore at Willie Gundy. Me sore? Why? Just because he's living at the Ritz-Carlton? I'm glad he's a success. Good luck to him. But don't give him too much credit. Don't forget success is all in the breaks. What do you mean it's all in the breaks? Well, take me. Nine years ago when I answered Duffy's ad for a busboy. What about it? If I had looked two inches to the left, I'd have seen that ad for an expert suspension bridge engineer. Uh, what? <laughs> what do you know about being a suspension bridge engineer? What did I know about being a busboy? <laughs> what I say, it's all in the brakes. Now look, Eddie. When Willie gets here, I want you to bear me out in one little white lie, huh? What's the white lie? I'm gonna tell him I'm a millionaire. <laughs> How are you going to explain to him why you're working as a bartender? I'm eccentric. <laughs> yeah, but them clothes are yours. How are you going to explain all them spots? Money stains. <laughs> Wait a minute. Why couldn't I have me stockbroker come in and tell me what a fortune I just made, huh? Who's going to be the stockbroker? Well, let me see. Who could... Uh... Eddie, I know what you're thinking, but who else is there? Uh, look, Finnegan yes. When Willie Gundy gets here tonight I want you to tell him that you're a big stockbroker from Wall Street, see? What's Wall Street? Well, it's uh, sort of an unsocial pyramid club uh... Look, Ike, if I'm going to be a broker Shouldn't I know something about stocks? Believe me, you know as much about them as anybody. <laughs> but uh, just in case, I'll try to explain to you quickly how the market works here. Yeah. You see, the dollar, or as it was originally known as uh, the wampum, uh, <laughs> was used as barter until the gold standard came in, see? Now, this change didn't take place just overnight. It took many years of civilization for the dollar to get up to as little value as it has today. <laughs> Uh, now, to continue, as, uh, as you probably know... Uh, Art, uh, let's not take anything for granted. Okay. As you probably don't know... Uh, better. Uh, all business is based on money, you uh -huh. see. Now, when you have money, it's called capital. Uh, when you're trying to get it, it's called labor. <laughs> Uh, this is what they call the Dow Jones averages. Uh, in other words, uh, when you buy stocks and they go up, uh, you get a seat on the stock exchange. Uh, see, but what happens if the stocks go down? Then you lose your seat. <laughs> well, look, uh, all right, uh, if you lose your seat, where do you sit? Uh, you, you sit on a thing uh, called the curb. 
Any further questions? Yeah. What? How can I be a stockbroker when I can only count up to ten? With stocks the way they are today, you don't have to count any higher. That is, unless you happen to be Willie Gundick. Hmm. You probably come rolling down here in a big car. Wait a minute, a big car. Eddie, call Mutual 95000. Who was that, the laughing Lithuanian or the chuckling Czech? Eddie, quit making up names. (laughs) Give me the phone. Hello? I'd like to talk to Nick, please. Yes, the giggling Greek. (laughs) Hello, Nick? Uh, This is Archie from Duffy's Tavern. Uh, Send over a Cadillac limousine, will you? The money? Look, Nick, if I buy the car, you'll get the money. Okay. Eddie, uh, I don't think that car will look uh, right standing outside the tavern without a chauffeur. (laughs) I said I don't think the car will look right standing outside the tavern without a chauffeur. Now, wait, whoa. See, I was hired as a waiter. You can also be fired as a waiter. (laughs) Well? Will you be needing the car today, sir? (laughs) That's better. I'll show that, Willie Gundy. Good afternoon, sir. I'm looking for the gentleman who ordered the new limousine. I am that millionaire. (laughs) You? You see any other millionaires around? Uh, come on, chauffeur. Uh, leave us go outside and take a look at the car. Well, there she is, gentlemen. A brand new 1949. Hot ziggity. Man, with a car like that, I could be the Alley Khan of Harlem. Just a second, young man. Looks ain't everything. You know, a car is like a dame. It's... What's under the hood that counts, sir? Uh, now, uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to check the motor. Check the motor? Look, bud, this is a 1949 Cadillac. I am not impressed by sales talk. If you don't mind, I'd like to look over the motor myself. Okay, if you insist. Oh, uh, let me lift up the hood here. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. Looks like a pretty good motor. You're looking in the trunk compartment. (laughs) But the motor is up at the other end of the car. Oh. Just want to see if you know your business. eh? (laughs) Now, tell me, uh, is uh, this the model with the uh, hydrochloride clutch? (laughs) The what? Well, I'll try to put it simply. Uh, what is the horsepower? It's 160. On what basis is that computed? Well, it's figured on the basis of 550 foot-pounds in one second or 33,000 foot-pounds in one minute. I'm afraid you haven't answered my question. <laughs> what I'm trying to find out is, uh, does this horsepower have uh, Timken bearings? Uh, I give up. <laughs> See, Eddie, I got him stumped. <laughs> Let's see here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, see, they got a new type carburetor. Bud, that's the horn. Oh, oh yes, this is the carburetor over here. That's the battery. Uh, wait a minute, here's a cute little gadget. Uh, hey, hey, what's that thing? That? Is? Well, that mixes gasoline with air to form a vapor that explodes when injected into the cylinders. Oh, really? What do they call it? The carburetor. <laughs> 
you was doing better in the trunk rack. <laughs> you was in there with me, I think. Uh, look, young man, uh, just uh, leave the car parked uh, here at the curb for a few hours, and I'll think it over. Uh, by the way, uh, what's the price? Six thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, only twelve thousand payments. This is yours. <laughs> Yeah, it's worth it, though, just to burn up that Willie Gundy. Well, look, young man, as I say, I'll think it over. Uh, just leave it parked there in front of the tavern for a few hours until I make up my mind, huh? Okay. But you don't mind if I take the key, do you? Not at all. Uh, just be sure that you leave the price tag on in a prominent place. What you doing, Mr. Archie? Uh, hanging up some pictures. Mm. I'll show that, Willie Gundig. Look at this autograph here, Eddie. Huh? Let's see. Sorry, Archie, but I'm marrying for love. Money isn't everything. Signed, Rita Hayworth. <laughs> <laughs> Me, the man most likely to be a failure. <laughs> Give me another tack, will you? Yeah, yeah. I want to hang up this map of the world. How's that look, Eddie? Let me see. To Archie, thanks for the loan, signed France, Italy, and Great Britain. <laughs> and that's the same Archie that was voted the most likely to be a failure. <laughs> Where that guy gets here? Between me stockbroker, me chauffeur, me Cadillac, and them autographs, I'll have that Willie Gundig borrowing money from me. Hey, wait a minute. This looks like him coming in now. Willie? Archie? Yeah. You ain't changed a bit. I wouldn't say that. <laughs> so you're Willie Gundig, the man voted most likely to succeed, huh? That's right, Arch. You remember that, huh? I certainly did. Arch, uh, tell me, do you remember the time that... I remember it very well. <laughs> well, it's great to see you again, Arch. Thank you. I noticed your letter was wrote on Ritz-Carlton Stationery. Yeah, that's what I was going to talk to you about. Don't brag about it. There's a couple of other guys that are doing okay, too. Did you see that limousine outside? Yeah. It's mine. Well, I'm glad to hear you're doing so well, Arch. As for me... Uh, just a second. Oh, James, uh... Yes, my lord? <laughs> uh, better put the limousine in the garage and get out the convertible. It's beginning to look like rain. <laughs> okay, sire. Uh, James is me chauffeur, you know, uh, Willie. Oh, a chauffeur, huh? Yes. Oh, by the way, James... Uh, yes, sir? When I go for my usual drive in the park today, be sure to cover me with me buffalo robe. Uh, <laughs> and take care to tuck me in with the fur side towards me. What? Why? Well, you always keep the fur side closest to, you know, it's warmer that way. Uh-huh. Too bad the buffalo didn't know that. <laughs> That'll be all, James. Uh, now, Willie, uh, enough about my fabulous success. Uh, <clears throat> tell me about yourself. Well, I'll tell you, Arch. Uh, that Cadillac, you know, cost $6,000. Well, it's as sure a surprise, Arch. You know, I always thought you'd end up... Well, you remember what the yearbook said about you. Leave us in that park at Sleeping Dogs. <laughs> now, where was we? Uh, oh, yes, you was talking about what a big shot you was. 
Well? Uh, excuse me a minute. Oh, stockbroker. Uh, uh, chief. Uh, have we heard anything from the secretary of the treasury? Yeah. He says he wants you to send in your taxes. The government needs the money. <laughs> oh, uh, how much is me taxes? Uh? Half a million bucks. Okay, go down to the bank and get it. Wait a minute, forget the bank. Uh, take it out of petty cash. <laughs> well, Willie, tell me, uh, how are things with you? Uh, well, I... uh, just a second. Oh, stockbroker. Uh, yeah? Uh, what's the latest on the ticker? The doctor says not to worry, it's just gas. <laughs> Broker was slightly stunned in the crash of 29, you know. But enough about me and uh, my sensational success. Uh, tell me about you, Willie. Uh, how you doing? Well, frankly, Arch, I could use 10 bucks. Oh, stockbroker. What did you say, Willie? I could use 10 bucks. You mean you're broke? Yeah. But how can you be broke and live at the Ritz Carlton? I don't live there. I just work there. That is until yesterday. Then why did you write your letter in their stationery just to look like a big shot? Well, I can explain that, Arch. Willie, if there's anything I hate, it's a phony. It's... <laughs> Arch, don't get sore. I just thought maybe for old time's sake you could let me have ten bucks. It wouldn't mean anything much to a guy like you. Oh, a Cadillac. <laughs> I guess ten bucks ain't gonna break a man of my means. Uh, James. Find some other means. <laughs> yeah. You really need the ten, huh, Willie? I sure could use it. Okay, kid. Hey, uh, here's ten bucks. Thanks, Arch. You're still a great guy. And if I run into any of the old gang, I'm sure gonna tell them what you did for me. Please, just tell the ones with money. <laughs> well, nice to have seen you again, Willie. Uh, sick and hot transit hospice. So long, Arch. So long, kid. Good old Willie. Nice guy, Eddie. I always liked him. He to be a failure, and here he has to come to me for a lousy ten bucks. Ain't it funny how life sometimes works out? Thank you for listening. Tomorrow night, it's The Shadow, followed by Ozzy and Harriet. Thanks to Joel Schoenwell and Paul Stringer for technical support. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a great night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.